House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. John Copenhaver is here. Hey, Al. How you doing? Well, I'm doing good, Mr. Vacation Beach, New York trip, hobnobbing oh, with oh. all the stars at the awards. You know, someone's got to do it, I guess. Yeah, it's hard work. It's hard work. I had a great time in New York City at the Lammies. That was uh, that was a fun day. Yeah, fun did you get your nails done? And I did not. I wish I were a little more fussy that way. I just feel like I don't have time for that kind of thing. But you Yeah, know. you noticed I would have asked if you got your hair done, but... <laughs> Oh, yes. Thank you. I can have my beard shaved, you know. You can still, you can still do things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Manly stuff, you know. Yeah. Fun stuff. So, hey, so now today we have a writer with us, and um, he's got a few books. He's been uh, – he's got quite the history, so we'll just uh, bring him in and let's talk to him about it. So, Mr. Bill Konigsberg, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to chat with you. So you you're kind of a sports guy, and you let, let's talk about let's talk about your start. So you're you're a person that's born in New York City, right? And um, expectations were high from birth. <laughs> you're reading my, my profile, aren't you? I, I know. I'm just looking at this and going, "Wow!" How did you get into the sports thing? Was that always your your bag? Yeah, you know, I, I always loved sports, and in fact, you know, basically I, I wound up working at ESPN. I, I worked for a while at the Associated Press as a sports writer. That was always what interested me. Um, I, if I could have been a baseball player, I would have been. I just didn't have talent, really. You, you know, along the way, probably the big issue for me was uh, realizing that I was gay, you know, when I was a teenager. This was the 1980s, so it was a different time, and... I just could not comprehend how somebody who was, you know, generally masculine, who liked sports, could also be gay. It felt like something something I hadn't heard of, and I know that probably sounds ridiculous now, uh, but that's definitely how it felt growing up in the in the 80s. Uh, so I followed the sports dream, but it, it, you know, anyway, there were some detours. Well, I relate to that in the sense that I, I'm a little older than you. I was uh, at, when I was growing up too. Like I, I would see Donahue would be the show that was on, and if he had gay people on, they were always extreme. Right. And I always looked at that, and as a young person, thought, "Well, that's not me." Right. Like I knew I liked men, but I didn't understand what I saw on TV. If you do more man things, is what considered man things like sports and cars. It's kind of confusing, especially back then. Absolutely. I, I, I just didn't know what it was. So I thought there was something wrong with me. Uh, and I thought I was the only person in the world who was like me. Um, that turned out to be wrong. There are like three of us. No, I'm kidding. There, I mean, there are <laughs> millions of us. <laughs> but, um, you know, along the way, by deciding to work in sports in, in various ways, um, I really was kind of a unicorn. Uh, I became the first openly gay man at ESPN when I came out uh, in an article in 2001 uh, about uh, called The Sports World Still a Struggle to Get for Gays. Um, that was my coming out article. You know, uh, a lot of things that by today's standards would seem ho-hum, <laughs> uh, but at that time it was new. It was different. How was it then for you? Um, that was the late 90s, mm -hmm. and kind of being out with 
ESPN and, and with people like that and in the sports world. I mean, I guess that's kind of what your article is talking about. But for you personally, what was it like being in that position? Well, I think that the big issue for me was, I guess it would be called heterosexism, that it was just assumed that everybody was straight. And so I was working at ESPN, and it was the vast majority of people were men, um, and it was assumed that you were straight. And I felt by not saying anything, you know, that was how I was taking care of myself so that I wouldn't, you know, wind up in conflict with anyone. But in the end, it was like telling a lie. So I had to tell my, I had to tell my story. And, uh, you, know, you know, people, I think when they know somebody who is gay, tend to be okay. I think the issue for some people tends to be uh, one of, of ignorance. You know, if you don't know anybody, it's easy to decide that gay people are this or that. Uh, so it went fine. I think the ESPN experience was overwhelmingly uh, positive. Now, that article you wrote, I guess it, it, it won an award for Glad Media, right, yes. in 2002. Yes. So that is that what kind of got you off on the writing world, like getting into doing books and, and, and things like that? Yeah, you know, when I, I went to college, I was uh, in high school, college, I always loved writing fiction, but I was told in college... Uh, that you can't make money as an author, um, and that's true. I mean, that's not true, but, but I mean, I think in some ways there is some truth to that, that it's a very challenging road, uh, but I, I just didn't even explore it. And then around 30, I thought, you know, here I am at ESPN. I'm enjoying my life. It's not exactly all that I want, but it's something, and I made the decision to go to graduate school um, to get my MFA in fiction, and I decided it's now or never. While I'm in grad school, I'm going to write some novels. Let's see if I can do this. And uh, it worked. I mean, I, I was lucky in that way. Yeah, it's quite a business. You can't always um, – not everyone's going to win. Well, you know, and I didn't even know when I got started uh, what it was going to mean. I rem my first book was called Out of the Pocket, and it's a, about a gay football player who is outed against his will and becomes a national – story. He's a high school kid. Um, and I remember the days before it came out thinking, uh, having no idea what this meant. Did this mean I was about to become a millionaire? I mean, there, just nothing was talked about about all of this. So uh, I was excited and I, I found myself to be pretty naive at first about what being published meant. Uh, I think I'm probably less so now. Yeah, but, uh, sometimes that's better. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the MFA program, I'm always grumbling that we aren't more uh, honest with our students about what it means to be a professional writer. In most cases, I think it's hard to make a living just off the writing. So you have to have a plan of some sort, right? I think it's good to talk about those things, but I, I was an MFA program about the same time it sounds like you were, and I weren't really uh, talking <laughs> about the professional, you know, part of writing, just the, you know, sort of craft. It was all craft, exactly. Where, where were you in a program, by the way? George Mason, um, outside of D.C.? Okay, yeah, I was at Arizona State. Yeah, they, they didn't talk about it. and I, I mean, I joke about it now when people say, what do you need to, to know to be a writer? And I say, marry rich. I, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, I've, I've done pretty well for myself, and yet uh, this would not be a terrific life. If I were single, I would be struggling. It's, it's a, I think unless you're uh, one of the 0.1%, this is a challenging way to make money. 
Well, you obviously got a, a husband that's too good for you. Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that, though. I feel like that's a boundary. No, he's a sweet guy. He's a good guy. Well, you know, but I, I think there there also has to be a line where if you're writing for something that means something to you, like if it's important, mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter how much money you're making other than just to live. You know what I'm saying? Like you're not – the writing part of it is, is what's – most important in one end and you're not necessarily going to be a millionaire from it but you're getting your story out that, that's so true I, I i mean for me i had no idea what this experience would be but it's been you know life making and life changing i i i, I have loved writing these books i have learned to focus on enjoying the product the project of creating something uh because i think it's pretty natural as a human being to wait for the book to come out and expect some joy there. You just can't control that. <laughs> so I really focus on, you know, every time I write something, I write something with a new challenge to keep myself excited and interested. Uh, and it's changed who I am, and, and I, I like the impact that I've had. You know, that's felt really good for me. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that each time you, you take on a project, a new book, and you put it out how it changes you and i and i kind of what drew me to you initially was when you um posted on social media about someone you had uh, dated or been with for a while who you found out had passed uh, yeah and you were you were doing those posts and i kind of thought it's kind of it, nowadays and you're old enough and so is john that we know that before the social media platform how you didn't you didn't get to display all of that you didn't get to talk about that with all these people and stuff so it was kind of, it's a different world and i wonder not only does a, each project change you but how much have you changed you think over the years enough to where you can sort of write your feelings down and it doesn't matter who picks up the book and reads it i think that i've changed almost completely <laughs> yeah, you, you know i i think that it's an, it's an extraordinarily vulnerable place to be. And, and now I'm just even talking not even about the social media. That's vulnerable, too. Uh, but to write, if you're writing from a personal place, that means you are putting your stuff out into the world. And I think, you know, you, you both, I'm sure, know uh, that people aren't always kind. It can be very hurtful if you put your baby out there, if you put your deepest thoughts and people uh, make fun of it or laugh or, you know, say nasty things. Uh, I, I've had days in my life where I've stayed in bed after reading an article, uh, a review or something, uh, and I've, I've had to grow some strength and resilience uh, in order to, like, put myself authentically, vulnerably out there, I would say. Right. I always find them and, and hunt them down and, and terminate yeah, them. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's a, uh, obviously, um, which is what I hope we'll talk more about. How? The how. <laughs> it's all sorts of good ways out there. I'll it's a great way. I don't way, want this to be know. used in court. <laughs> <laughs> when you put out a book, like, um, is, there, is there something that you want people to take away from a book when you, when you do it? Like, are you trying to communicate or are you trying to get interaction? What is your hope? It, you know, I, I think that it's a connection with the world. I think that the, the truth for me, singular truth, is that I've always thought I was the only one. And I think this project for me, this this part of my life about writing and, and uh, publishing novels has been me saying, do you know what I mean? <laughs> do you feel this way? 
and, and it's been incredible. It's been incredible to understand that, yes, people not only in English but in nine other languages do have the same feelings and the same thoughts. And, and I, I find that it's helped me feel like more of a person, you know, like part of a part of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, writing does, it's interesting because I was um, thinking about various ways people identify. And I think for whatever reason, writing has, I think like I identify first as a writer, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because of the sort of sense of community you get. I don't know, there's something about all of us who go out there, but it's nonfiction or like, it's narrative, you know, creative writing of some sort. There's always sort of just like you're, you're giving of yourself. In your various sort of, projects over the years, have you found moments where you had to do more of that mining of your own self or, uh, for lack of a better word, exposing of your own self in your fiction? Or do you feel like, you know, has it fluctuated or changed at all? So uh, I, I don't want to give you the longest-winded answer of all time, uh, <laughs> but it, it's changed a lot. And, and if I can, real quickly, I'm going to try to explain what that means. I, I think there's always been a piece of me in every novel. Uh, the novel that was about a high school football player coming out in the spotlight was about me coming out at ESPN. Just I translated it into a young adult novel. One way or the other, my most famous novel is my second one called Openly Straight. It's about labels. Uh, and, you know, I was beginning to feel in my life that how much does the label gay define me? And what if I want to be more? And what if I want to be different? And so it's a novel that takes that idea and explodes it in a, in a teen setting. Uh, but, you know, those, that means in some ways I'm putting myself out there. But I would say the last two novels, The Bridge and Destination Unknown, have been the most personal uh, and, and probably showed the most growth of my ability to mine my life and create something artistic out of it. I'm happy to say more about it, but that's the truth. It's interesting. I think writer, I don't know, this is my theory. It may be totally a, a terrible theory, but that, you know, writers either sort of move towards the more personal or begin really personal and then moving from one point to the other. But um, I certainly, I can, I think that as I, every book that I do also gets more personal, you know, I, I didn't necessarily start that way. I mean, if you're reading between the lines, of course, but I just think it's interesting how, different writers evolve. I, I, I think it's fascinating, and I, I, it's been also a pleasure to begin to have writer friends whose careers I follow and where I can see that happening for them. It's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, and, and I wouldn't have expected it would happen for me, uh, but I think I needed to establish something of myself as a writer and then take a look at the things that were elemental to my existence. The bridge really goes into... Uh, depression, um, which is something I've suffered from a lot in my life, chronic depression. Uh, and that wasn't a book I could have written right away. And Destination Unknown is about growing up in, 19, in the 1980s in New York City as the AIDS epidemic uh, hit. And uh, that's some meaty stuff. Uh, and I had to figure out a way that I could do it uh, authentically and interestingly. And I think that is why it was my seventh book and not my second what, why do you think you sort of focus on uh, why the YA service a genre? What drew you to that sort of age, I guess, age group? Or it's more of a anymore that it's so widely read. I hate to say it's an age right. group, but well, you, you know, I, I I kind of happened into it. Uh, 
I didn't know that YA was a thing, uh, but when I was in my first year of graduate school, I was writing naturally from a teenage perspective. And I think that probably just means I'm immature. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, that was what was coming from me. Uh, and I happened to see a course at Arizona State called Young Adult Literature. And I don't want to say that the teacher was very good looking, but he was. And so I took the class. And, and uh, it, it turns out all these years later that that person, I joke about that all the time, he's one of my best friends, he's straight. Uh, but that class changed my life because it showed me something I could do that was rather natural for me when I was in my early 30s, and I just held on and kept doing it. I, I taught high school for many years, so I think there's something about high school that just drives you. It's just it's elemental. You ever get tired of stories for the time period? Well, don't, don't you think that's because for most of us anyway, especially for LGBTQ people, that's like the white-hot period, right? I mean, if you were coming to terms with the fact that you were different in high school, that's never going to go away as a, an elemental period where everything was so on fire. Yeah, I think you're finding out all these sort of very, honestly, things that I think stay with you. You don't always always understand what they are or handle them the best right. way you can in high school. But it's those seeds that I think you can truly draw a line to. Um, yeah. Well, at least I certainly can. And so I think you're, 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 you're right. I think it's just, you know, it's like the, the, the bedrock of your identity is somehow happening there, um, even though it's chaos. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would be quite different if you were growing up now. And also the way the the way younger people now is is so much more accepted to be gay, yeah. right? It's it's not it's a different world. So different people around. You know, the the issue now I think is is a lot about gender. And and I've actually been mentoring a young trans man who is just now nineteen, uh, but I've been with them since they transitioned. Uh, and it's a learning experience for me. I think in some ways there's an analogy that people who are trans today are kind of dealing with the same shit that people who were gay <laughs> were dealing with 35 years ago. That's a very hard thing to translate because the world is entirely different. And that's, that's a really, it's a really tough question. You know, I, 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 I'm sort of surprised in one sense of the backlash, um, but then not really after being through the Reagan years, you know. It, you kind of you kind of realize how how people get talked into something, and I think you're right. I think the 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 best thing people can do is to get to know someone who's in or coming from that yes. that area that is being attacked. Yeah, I think I think so, and and I think that the vast majority of people have done that. I think that it's the twenty five to thirty percent of people who can't and won't. Uh, who are driving the discussion now, unfortunately. But but I also think that gender is a big a big area that deserves a lot of discussion and hasn't had it yet. So I think there are a lot of people who don't understand what's going on with gender. Right, yeah. right. There, yeah, there, there's so much more. It's crazy how everyone handles it too. Sometimes it's just. It, it, so when you were writing, you must have been. Did you write over the pandemic as well? Yes. And unfortunately, I was writing first about suicide and depression. Um, Wow. pandemic, and then I was writing about a pandemic during the pandemic. So I, I made not good choices, don't you? <laughs> it's kind of strange, hey, uh, how things like that happen. But when you're when you were writing it, then 
Was it pretty intense for you because the pandemic was going on? Yes, um, it, it, it was. I mean, you know, the pandemic, I, I think sometimes we, I don't want to say, I shouldn't say we, or me, it felt entirely different the first six months than any time after that. I mean, I was really uh, isolated, and I assume most of us felt that way. Uh, so anything I was doing at that time felt magnified. Uh, and I think after that, like most Americans, I just started to feel angry and upset. <laughs> so, you know, it's a challenging time in our lives. And I'm so glad that it's basically over. And, you know, along the, the, those lines, though, you know, mining the, mining the time in my life when the AIDS epidemic was new was a lot. Uh, you know, that's the most traumatic thing that I've gone through. Are you, are you surprised in the way people behaved but over this pandemic? And, and I, I can call it a straight pandemic in, just to separate it because the behavior and the attitudes, and even now, I mean, today going through the news cycle, there's people protesting today about the inflated COVID numbers and deaths and fate and all that stuff. And it's, it's, it's a protest more about, you know, um, going after our children with, you know, the trans reading and stuff, but it's kind of, they're screaming out stuff about COVID. But, you know, that whole anti-vaccine and the fake COVID thing and, and how much of an impact and hold it had on people. And if you go back into the 80s and you look at the AIDS uh, epidemic, people, for the most part, would ignore it or not talk about it because it's a gay disease. And so there wasn't that kind of a backlash because people never took it that way. Do you know what I mean? Are you surprised with the way the public handled this? I was, I was very surprised at first, but I think over time, you know, one impact that this pandemic has had on me personally is that it's changed the way I think of people. Um, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I know. I, I, just buy, I just have dogs and I stay away from people now. <laughs> I have dogs too. I love my two dogs. I, I just, yeah. I think that there are wonderful people out there, but I think as a species we are afraid, uh, and I think we're messy. Uh, and it's not to say that I'm not afraid and messy. I think there are ways in which I am both. Uh, but, boy, on a global scale, when everybody's at their worst. So are, are, you, are you worried about today's plight, or I guess or the, today's concern about LGBT and everything else going on with, with trans and stuff? Are you kind of... Worried about the backlash? Yeah, I, I am. I've been drawn into it in, in some unfortunate ways. Uh, you know, what happened last year in Texas, uh, a Republican lawmaker made a list of 850 books that should be banned from all libraries in Texas. Uh, all of my novels were on those lists. Uh, then people started to challenge my books in Texas and otherwhere, other places. Uh, Florida has followed suit. My books are out of basically every Florida school library now. It's it's impacted me. Um, and, you know, there's the personal and then there's the, the universal. I mean, the universal is, is afraid because I've seen this before and it's terrible. I mean, people get hurt when, when we start to vilify a group of people and car call them groomers and pedophiles, bad things happen. So So I'm very concerned in that way. And, and on a personal level, I got drawn into it where there was a, in California, there was a school board where some crazy person got up and complained about my novel, The Music of What Happens, because it was in, on an app that 
their first grade child had where they could download any book. However, that, that person, it was an audio book, and they would have had to look for it. So no first grader would have actually done so. Uh, but they started saying that I was writing pornography for first graders, uh, which, of course, is the, the last thing I'm doing. I'm not writing for first graders, and it's not pornography. Uh, and that was very painful. I, I really uh, I think of myself as stronger and resilient today than I've been, uh, but I actually developed shingles uh, when I was dealing with that. I found it extraordinarily uh, painful. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that um, as this is happening and you're just sort of horrified by it, and also from my position as a teacher, I mean, I mean, I was teaching at an independent day school, so we weren't dealing quite with the same issues, but we would have parent complaints. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's very different now. It feels almost unhinged. Yes. These books aren't even being read. They're just glancing at them. Right. And deciding what their content is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. That, that is exactly true. It, it's also true that we have gone, come past this. So in some ways, it, it feels unhinged because as a society, at least in terms of gay, lesbian, bisexual issues, we've come further than this, and now we've backtracked, and that feels strange. But the, but the virulence really comes out with the trans issue, and... Uh, Having felt the virulence of the gay issue in the, in the 80s, uh, you know, trans people have my full uh, attention and support. It's ugly. And I also think, as you said, when you said in Unhinged, I thought of the photo of the um, uh, Nazi flags at, at Disney. Like, it feels a little bit closer to sort of actual fascism, Nazism, than it has in the past. Does that make sense to you? Yes. In fact, I mean, I would go as far as to argue that that's, that is kind of the long game here. I, I think it's much more organized, yeah. much more, um, you know, it's not just someone, you know, I think they sort of, at times it's represented as, a, a, you know, you know, just concerned parents or mm -hmm. parents for rights. Right. Um, but I think it's much more mobilized than that. I don't think it's necessarily a lot of people, I agree, but I definitely think it's more organized, which is why, um, you know, it's having this effect. And um, I think that uh, it, it, it's, I think it's, it's terrifying, but terrifying beyond just the banning of books is terrifying what it signifies. Right. You know, one is bad enough, but the other is even worse. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not even sure that the people for the most part, who, the politicians who are leading this charge actually believe this. I think they're using it, and now, of course, that's even more reprehensible. That if you know what you're doing and you're still vilifying people in order to get votes, there's a that's a pretty ugly place to be. Deeply cynical. It's absolutely mm -hmm. uh, absolutely cynical. And so I think we have to push back hard and um, and get those people who are kind of quiet but agree to. Those <laughs> his parents are defaulting to politeness but don't agree with these crazy book banners to step up and be a little less polite. But I think that we, we need help from the middle. And, and you know, I, I think that the middle in some ways is waking up, and I think we'll find out next year how much they're waking up. Hard to say. Yeah, time to be in Canada. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I've heard a few people say that, and I know we all said that in 2016, but... I think well, I'm all ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm set up and ready. So, <laughs> Good. so, so, where do you see yourself going now that you're you're an old man? Yeah. 
and and pass the big five zero. Uh, what are you What are you going to continue to write into? Or are you going to go something completely different? Or where's Bill going? I think it's it's a crossroads and it's somewhere completely different. I have two places I'm going. Uh, I've worked on now for about the last year and a half my first adult novel, uh, and it's very different. I, the only thing that's the same about it is that it's a coming-of-age story, but it's a coming-of-age for a middle-aged gay man. It's sort of about what it means to be an adult gay man at this time. So that's still coming-of-age, just different. But that I, I, I have some misgivings about. It's not working the way I want it to exactly yet. Uh, and I have another idea for a young adult that I've gotten started on that is uh, high concept. It's, I, I think in some ways I've written all my trauma. Uh, I, I don't have anything else uh, interior to talk about. Uh, so I'm looking at bigger stuff and trying to have a little bit more fun in my own writing. How do you get, when you're writing a book like this, or like Openly Straight or something like that, how do you get into the mind of a character that you're writing? Like, How is it that you create that character? Well, I have to hear them first. Um, I think that I am an auditory learner. Uh, I think that my ears are probably the thing that are, are most special. <laughs> now I'm just picturing me with big ears, but yeah, um, but, and, and, and I do. don't hold my ears. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that yes, I, I have to hear it, and then I, I have to start writing. And I have a thing that I do with a close friend of mine from my MFA days where I write her emails from my characters when I start a book. And I basically start, you know, with not much of a voice locked in, and then as I write, the voice starts coming. And it's a, it's a wonderful tool. Uh, and once I hear a voice, I, I'm set. You know, once I get that voice locked in, the rest, there may be some surprises, but I, I never stop hearing that voice. I always know what they're thinking and saying. Do you find yourself unable to drive when you hear that voice, or do they let you drive? <laughs> do you mean actual drive? <laughs> yeah, actually dri driving while this voice is I talking mean, to you. It's impossible. Swerving off the road. Many crashes, many. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think that it's a give and take. If I take driving to mean uh, who's in charge, uh, I think that that there's a give and take. I think I like to be surprised by the voices. I like them to tell me stuff I don't know. That feels very alive to me. Uh, and I still, to this day, I don't really know where some of that stuff comes from. I, maybe I'm spiritual, I don't know. But I do sometimes I think, where did that come from? And how did I know to follow that road? I don't know. Just happened. Well, you're not waking up in the middle of the night with like muddy shoes and bloody hands or anything, <laughs> shoveled by the bed, are you? Uh, I don't want to talk about that. I told you. Yeah. You know. <laughs> we won't tell anyone. <laughs> you always ask that question. I'm thinking that maybe you're you're experiencing yeah. some of it. Oh, I, I do it all the time. I'm, I'm proud of it. I, <laughs> I'm proud of it. You know. You know I, I, but um, I do wake up with uh, voices in my head or words that I, that I need to write down. That happens constantly to me. So I, I run out to my computer at 2 in the morning uh, and write a paragraph uh, because I, I'm so afraid that it will disappear. Well, but uh, so do you develop a relationship? And I asked this one. This might not, you know. It's a, it's a lot of the guests have said that their 
characters are quite often end up being very close to them. They're like family, mm. kids, friends. Like they, they kind of associate them as a family member more than anything. What, do you have that kind of relationship, or is it just the voice? I don't think so, but what that, how that tracks for me is that I, I have a tendency to get depressed when I'm done with a book, so maybe in some ways that's like the loss of a friend or a playmate. Maybe in some ways that is what's happening. Um, right. You know, I feel like I know those people very well, but, you know, people will then sometimes ask me, well, what happens after the last page? And I'm thinking... Well, don't you know how a book works? I mean, <laughs> you know, like that's the last page. Uh, don't ask me that. But you know, so they cease to exist. Um, but yeah, I'd never thought of it that way as family. Well, there you go. Something Thank you to think about. Yeah, there you go. What's your structure? Are you are you the guy that outlines everything, or just it just goes as it comes type thing? You just write it as it goes. There's no structure. You haven't got it planned out. You you don't know where it's going to end. It just sort of Goes. I, I sort of have a uh, often a loose structure, but I think the thing that is most important about that is flexibility and and really not uh, you know really allowing things to go where they go so that I don't fall in love with my structure. Uh, but I have a general idea often of where I want to go, and only a couple times have have I strayed far from that. Uh, but you know, because it's like you know that you want to say something and you know, where the book goes says something. But it may turn out during the process of writing the book that what I'm saying changes. Wow, that's interesting. You are you are you able to just sort of turn it on? Are you are you the guy that sits there Monday to Friday at and works nine to five writing and you can just do that or do things interfere with that or do um you know, feelings and things going around you, does that sort of interfere? I think at times in my writing career I have mastered the ability of just doing that nine to five thing no matter what uh and that that's been good it's been a good structure for me right now uh while i feel saner than i have at most points in my life i am not doing that i am uh, i i'm allowing my life to flow the way it is flowing and so a lot of things disrupt my writing and i probably need to fix that at some point yeah yeah well actually i i, I do that but i don't i don't mind it i think it actually it kind of works better mm. if, if you get interrupted so to speak yeah um sometimes it's better i mean uh, I, I don't know but some you know like i said there's some guys they'll sit down and and they can just power write nine to five and yeah i, I don't seem, I, you know i think that I'm probably a little bit more like you when I look over my entire career that, that often I'm interrupted. But, you know, then you, you sort of come back to it, right? You have to, or else you'll never right. finish a book. Otherwise, you don't get anything done. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. you got a lot of unfinished projects, yeah. you know. I like starting projects. I think maybe from now on I'm not going to be a writer. I'm just going to be a project starter. I'm going to write the first 20 pages of, like, 100 ideas. And that will be yeah. the rest of my life. That's right. You, just, you do the unfinished volume one, unfinished volume two. You can just totally. <laughs> I would. I would love just to come up with ideas and and uh, you know not have to sit there and get them down on the page. Yes. 
That is, the idea, I've never understood writers who struggle with ideas because I, not, you know, that's fine if that, that's true of, of you, but it's yeah. like, I just don't, it's not a problem I have, but boy, getting it down and interruptions are just, I don't even know. Like, I, 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 I the idea of having a sort of beautiful day of writing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had that. <laughs> Something's always happening. Right, things <laughs> happen, but. You know, I, I don't understand also what you say. I mean, ideas are easy. The, the, the hard part is where you get to that first place where the idea that is the greatest idea in the world, actually, you have to make a new choice or decision. That's usually when those ideas go away uh, because, you know, every idea needs to be fleshed out. Uh, but, by the way, just for anyone who is listening to this, um, along the lines of things to never say to authors, as far as I'm concerned, I have great ideas for books. That drives me crazy. I mean, good, I, I mean, I mean, like, oh, I should write a book. I have great ideas for books. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 Go write. They a book. always told me. Yeah. Everyone told me I should write a book. Yeah. I'll write a book when I retire. That's yeah. Yeah. I have actually friends who retired and wrote books and are wonderful, but yes. it's just an annoying thing to say. <laughs> it's like our job is so challenging like I, I my husband is a lawyer and he always says having now watched my career for 20 years he would easily take lawyering over <laughs> just the truth do you think about your readers then as you're writing the book are you thinking about what they're going to think or how they're going to un- like do you know what i mean are you yeah. thinking about them are they over your shoulder as you're writing this i think that perhaps they should be more over my shoulder than they are i tend to forget about my readers uh, and really just focus in on telling the truth. Uh, And, you know, when you're writing for teenagers, sometimes that can be problematic because I'm not thinking about boundaries. But the good news is that we have editors, right? (laughs) So if there are places that I go beyond where I need to go, uh, they'll pull me back. Uh, But, yeah, I find it um, difficult to, you know, that's like inviting a critic into the room. And if I invite a critic into the room, I'll never get anything done because critics criticize. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? I, you yeah, know what I'm saying? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because you don't want it to lead where you're going. Yes, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean, because then you start thinking, oh, they're going to want this. They're going to. You don't want it. You don't want it to turn into writing for what you think they want. Right. I, I mostly I, I, write to make myself laugh. Like I think that I'm super clever, <laughs> so so I like to interrupt and in, in, uh, to entertain myself. And what I've learned through all of this is I'm not nearly as clever as I think I am. That's yeah. <laughs> well, of course. Do you, do you ever want to go back and rewrite something? Um, I have trouble yeah. reading my books. <laughs> yeah, trouble reading them for that reason. I think. Oh, oh, and. Uh, I don't know if you've had the experience of listening to an audio book that you've read. Oh, yeah. I, I did that on the way to L.A. one time, uh, listening to my audio, the audio book of Honestly Ben, and I had to turn it off because there was too much me in the car. I couldn't stand it. I was yeah. spending too much time with myself. I needed other things. I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a That's all I listen to. I'm an old man. <laughs> I can't read anymore. They, they send me... I enjoy listening to – I like hearing the interpretation of my books, mm-hmm. but I don't really want to sit through the whole thing. So it's like I've, I've really enjoyed what some of the narrators have done, and that's been really pleasurable. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't want to just – 
I mean, like, there's so many other things to listen to. <laughs> I, know, I know the story. I know how it goes. Yes. Well, I, I don't want to listen to my books. Mm-mm. My Thanks. books suck. Are you kidding? <laughs> we all feel that way. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, on, on the one hand, I have to say I am pleased with the seven books that I've written. Like, on a, on a basic level, I am glad that they are out there. I'm glad that I put in the work. I feel good about them. And on another level, oh, I'd love to rewrite them all, you know, yeah. make them good. Well, that, but that, I think that's an endless job, you know what I mean? Because then you finish doing rewriting your books, and then in 10 years you want to do it again. Yeah, right. You know, right. I don't think it'll ever end, so you gotta, you got to walk away. Yes. That's what I do. Yes. It cringe sometimes when someone picks up a book that, mm-hmm. like the first book I wrote or something, and they go, oh, I just got this book. Ooh, no, 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 no. Don't talk to <laughs> no, me about don't. it. Don't. <laughs> don't do it, man. <laughs> yeah, my first book, Out of the Pocket, won the Lambda Literary Award in 2008, uh, but very clearly to me, two things. It's my worst book by far. Uh, I was less of a writer by far. Um, and there were like 24 books with gay characters that year in my genre. Uh, now there are, any year there are 400, you know, so winning the Lambda in 2008 is meaningless in 2023. It still means something, right? Because, yeah. you know, yes. uh, it, it seems to be the books that of mine that are most praised or sell the most or, the, or what I think are the worst. <laughs> and what, but what do you do, right? I mean, you just kind of go, well, yeah. for me it's terrible. But, right. but doesn't, doesn't winning an award, just how did that affect you in a set in a, in as in, did it put it put pressure for you to follow up with that kind of a, you know, that kind of an award again and kind of rep, reputation, or do you just not care, or like how does that affect a writer? So, so I am going to be brutally honest, and this will probably get me in trouble if people listen to this. But I'm going to. Oh, good, I like that. Yeah, exactly. I, the the truth is that I seemed starting with the Glad Media Award I won when I wrote my essay about being gay at ESPN. I just started to win awards, and, you know, I won the Lambda Literary Award. A couple of years later, I won the Stonewall Book Award. I won the Penn Center USA Literary Award. Were you sleeping with people or something to get this? I was, but I was okay. sleeping with the wrong people. Um, oh. No. <laughs> um, Not if you were winning. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think a few things. I think that I was getting extraordinarily lucky, and I think my books are better now. So, so I don't know what it all means. Like, I, I mean, awards are very subjective. I think my best work is unawarded, but that's okay, right? I, I've won some awards, too, and I think ultimately I feel like that it's really about what the award stands for and what's trying to highlight mm. that's important. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, it may have made an impact for a lot of people, but awards don't do a lot for sales. Correct. I haven't found correct, right? And, um, and so I think that it's very nice, it's lovely, it's yeah. it's wonderful, but there's a greater meaning at hand there. I was more concerned about, or not concerned, but more thinking about, like when you, when you have a book that is real successful, or it wins awards, or it sells a lot. Just more if that if you feel kind of a pressure with the follow up book that. It's got to be good enough. Like, you know what I mean? You start kind of going, oh, will they like this? I was thinking more on those lines anyway. And it's a good question. And um, the truth is the way that I've always looked at it is that this is the big leagues. Um, And so I've been aware from the beginning 
that I have to be at my very best in order to be good enough. Like that's just the truth. That that I can't wing it. There are there are there are probably writers who can wing it, uh, but I have to put my very all into everything I do, or it's just not going to work. So listen, so Bill, yes. Um, how do people find you? Are you a person on social media? Have you got a lot of accounts? Are you all over the place? You got a website? Um, pick up apps, grinder. But like, where where do people <laughs> find Bill? So where do you find me? I I think. Probably the best, the place I'm certainly always on is Instagram. Uh, I have gotten the hell out of Twitter world a couple of years ago uh, and won't ever go back. Uh, I do Facebook, but I think I'm now closest to, I, my account is private and I have close to 5,000 friends. So Instagram is best on social media. I think it's Bill Konigsberg or B. Konigsberg. And uh, I have a website, www.billkonigsberg.com. Uh, and I'm not on Grinder, so sorry. Oh, that's that's all right. I mean, <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate you being here and and uh, talking and and I've taken a lot of notes and I've learned a lot here. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed the flexible and whips and all that. <laughs> I've enjoyed the conversation with both of you. Thank you. Well, we'll have all of the uh, we'll have your books, website, and everything up on our uh, page or our website as well, so people know and they can. You know, listen, they can do one click, and uh, we'll also have some private picks with whips mm. for everyone. So thank uh, gonna, you. I, I need to send you some stuff, obviously. Oh, great. I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm 61 in a week, so I'm, I, I've taken anything now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Al. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill Conisberg, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.